people are shooting at us over here. We can't see them because we're under the streetlights. And then boom, like 15 feet away, like it went between our vehicles. And what it was, was it was a, an EFP, an explosive force penetrator. And so boom, it went off. And I could tell by the way that it, it went off. And I was like looking right at it when it went off. And then I was like, oh, that's not cool. More gunfire. And we can't see who we're, who's shooting at us. And then five more seconds, boom, even closer. And it just went between right behind my vehicle and the vehicle that was behind us. So it like, it just missed us. So if we weren't like hauling the mail and driving as fast and as erratic as we were, definitely we would have gotten hit. I might not be standing here right now talking to you. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selleck, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey, the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, Seven Hatters. In this episode, we speak with William Branham and dive deep into hat numbers one and four, the soul and the entrepreneur, as we uncover how you can conquer your entrepreneurial fears and maximize the chances of your success with the mindset of a SEAL. William is a retired Navy SEAL, sniper instructor, and combat leader with 26 years of service. He is also a fellow entrepreneur and the founder and CEO of Naked Warrior Recovery, a CBD company focused on recovery for veterans and first responders. Let's welcome William to the seven hats so he can take us on his incredibly difficult and arduous journey, learn all about the Get Naked framework that William made famous, and fully understand why the Navy SEALs say that when you're under pressure, you don't rise to the occasion, you sink to the level of your training. So train well. Without further ado, William? First, I want to thank you for your service and welcome you to the Seven Hats. Thank you very much. I'm I'm really honored to be here. Awesome. So let's be clear. I am not a military guy and I'm the furthest thing from it. Nevertheless, I have a profound respect for those who serve and for what they go through in order to achieve excellence. In that regard, elite military operators and entrepreneurs have at least a little in, in common. So I'm super excited to have a conversation with you today on your experiences and life lessons, really from the highest levels of military operations and how those can be applied to us as mere mortals in civilian life. So if you don't mind, let's start with a briefing on your early foundation. Where were you born and how was your upbringing? So I grew up in Meridian, Mississippi. It's a little town on the near the 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 border of Alabama and so there's not a lot there there's like maybe some hunting and fishing there's a lot of trees uh but not very much industry overall um there is a naval air station there my dad was in the navy he was a, a construction guy a CB and i always said that i would never join the navy because they ha- have the ugliest uniforms uh i got to see these young kids like get out of boot camp and go to these schools that were in in 
in Meridian or just outside of Meridian at the, the Naval Air Station there. And they would kind of not, they would act like a bunch of idiots, quite honestly, out in town. And then lo and behold, I joined the Navy and I was one of those same idiots who I said I would never become. But uh, I was heavily in, involved in the Boy Scout. So I was, you know, I was, uh, I like hunting. I like camping. I like running around in the woods. And I always knew in the back of my mind that I was going to be some sort of uh, military, elite, small unit, uh, elite special forces, something. Although I didn't know that vernacular back then, because, you know, even though I look very young, I'm a little older than, than uh, you might think. Uh, so I was, I was heavily involved. I thought maybe I would be an army ranger because Rambo, John Rambo <laughs> was an army ranger. Uh, Chuck Norris was part of a unit called Delta Force. Uh, John Wayne was uh, a Green Beret in the movie Green Beret in Vietnam. And, you know, those were kind of my my role models as I was growing up. I thought I also wanted to be a ninja because I watched a lot of Kung Fu theater. So I saw like, you know, ninjas were pretty cool back then. Uh, and then, you know, I heard about like Marine Corps Scout Snipers. I thought that was pretty cool because the the commercials as I was growing up, there was like a, a guy with a sword and a and a shield fighting a dragon, a fire breathing dragon. I was like, and they have like really cool looking uniforms and sniper sounds really sexy. So I for sure wanted to go down one of those routes. I had never heard of what a Navy SEAL was, never heard of it. Again, you know, joining the Navy was the furthest thing from my mind, but I was at a jamboree, Boy Scout jamboree, and uh, I, I was tent mates with a kid and he was like yeah i'm gonna be a navy seal when i grow up and i'm also gonna be a, uh, an f-14 fighter pilot and i was like okay i know what a f-14 is those are the cool with the wings that go back and forth and the movie top gun that's pretty cool but I, what's a navy seal and he explained to me uh they, you know they work in small units they sneak around in the woods they shoot guns they blow stuff up they jump out of airplanes they scuba dive they do all this other stuff and they're really the the best the most high most elite special forces uh, in the U.S. arsenal, I was like, well, if that's the best and that's the hardest, then I, that's what I want to do also. So the Navy recruiter called me right after I got from back from that trip as if he were listening to me and he knew I was going to say yes. He just called me randomly out of the blue between my, my the summer between my 11th and 12th grade of, of high school and said, hey, have you ever thought about joining the Navy? And I was like, well, if you'd have called me six weeks ago, I'd have had a very different answer for you. But uh, right now I'm thinking about I want to be a Navy SEAL and an F-14 pilot. So he's like, come on down. So I went down to uh, went down to his office the next day. We talked. They showed me a really cheesy uh, Navy SEAL recruiting video, and I was like, "Where do I sign? How do I get started?" Love it. So that was sort of my my humble beginnings. You know, I was very poor. My dad wanted me to join the military only because he was in the military. He saw the value in it, but he wanted me to study electronics because he thought that was the future. He was right. Uh, my grandmother did not want me to join the military. She wanted me to go to college and, and things like that, which I did eventually. I, you know, I went from, you know, through 25 years of actually, we'll, we'll say 23 years of, of naval service with a PhD, a public high school diploma. And then in my last three years, I went from having a, a public high school diploma to a, a, a master's and a, a bachelor's and a master's in, in organizational leadership and strategic leadership. So that's what I did my, you know, as I'm doing a full-time job in my last three years. But, but, uh, so I, I joined the Navy. I took the, in boot camp. I took the seal screening test and I failed it. And I, I say I failed it. I actually quit on it. I was, I was like, ah, oh, these pushups are kind of hard. Uh, I don't think I can get all of them in. So I just stopped and they're like, okay, beat it. Uh, come back later. You can take it again later. I'm like, okay, check. So I went, finished, graduated boot camp, And then I went to another school and, uh, I didn't, take the screening test during that school like I should have because it was up north of Chicago in the wintertime. It's cold and it's dark and it's scary outside. And I got towards the end of that school 
And I had an opportunity to go to another school in Virginia Beach where it was nice and warm and sunny. And I was like, I'll go there. I'll take this test again. And then I'll go to SEAL training. Well, what I didn't know is I took that, that second school and that put me in line to, I had 24 months of obligated service to a ship in Yokosuka, Japan. So now it's going to take me three years from the day I joined the Navy before I can even have a, a chance to go to SEAL training. Uh, so I'm on a ship in Yokosuka, Japan. I'm, I called the guy that says, you can go to your next, where your next duty station is going to be. And uh, I had I'd passed all the SEAL stuff, all the medical stuff, all the everything. And he's like, well, you're too critical to the Navy because of that school, that other school that you took. So I'm not going to let you go become a Navy SEAL or even try. I'm not even going to let you go try. And so I went around and I found as many people to give me letters of recommendation and, and things like that until one day the chief of naval operations came to my little ship in Yokosuka, Japan. He didn't go to any other ship the whole time he was there. He only came to my ship and there's about 12 ships in, in Japan. Came to my ship. He had CNO's call. And just to kind of give your listeners a, a, an idea of who the chief of naval operations is, he's the most senior guy in the Navy. The only people that are more senior to him in the military is the Secretary of Defense and the President of the United States. So, I, I mean, I pretty much went straight to the top and I didn't even like recognize that at the time. Uh, so he asked, hey, does like he gave his vision, you know, as big military leaders do and said, hey, does anyone have any questions? And I raised my hand and I was like, yeah, I joined the Navy to be a SEAL. I think I deserve a chance to go. But my detailer won't let me go. I threw that guy under the bus, kind of. And uh, so he turns to my commanding officer and he says, is he a good guy? And my commanding officer says, yeah, he was the sailor of the quarter this quarter, which is kind of like employee of the month. I did a good job and whatever. He's like, he turns back to me. He's like, check, you'll be in the first class after your PRD, which is planned rotational date. So six weeks later, I'm off to California to go to SEAL training. You got balls. And that's, I think that's what, I think that's what he saw in you. He's like, Who, who's this kid? Who is this guy? Who's this guy? So he, it was really just a dumb kid that didn't know any better. I think really. Well, it's fate. So you're, so you're, so your father's in the military, priming you to go into the military. You're in high school. You're grandma is basically saying, no, don't go. Anyone else in your family not being supportive? And how did that weigh in with your decision? Did you have concerns? I didn't have, I didn't have any concerns. I mean, maybe I should have, uh, maybe I would have trained a little bit harder before going because, you know, kind of the thought in the back of my mind was how hard can it be? Well, it's, it's pretty hard yeah, actually. Exactly. It's pretty, it's pretty hard. Uh, but it's totally doable. Like anyone, like I will tell you, if you're in reasonably, any kind of reasonably good shape, you can do it. You just have to want to do it at the end of the day. That's, 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 I read David Goggins book and I don't think anyone can do it, but that's my opinion. I don't know. <laughs> it's funny. I, I think, I personally think that anyone can do it. If you want to be there and you're in reasonably healthy shape, you can do it. Well, I, I'll let people Maybe decide. Maybe I'm being naive and giving yeah. myself. Uh, you know, you, you, I, I'm looking at you, those that can't see you, I'm looking at you. You look like a seal. There are certain people like Jocko, right? And they look like seals. You look like a seal. Jocko looks like a Neanderthal. I knew Jocko <laughs> in the, in the seal teams. Like you would, he's a very smart guy. And like, I've, I've read some papers that he's written, uh, like kind of documents to try and change rules and things like that. And I was like, who wrote this? Oh, Jocko wrote this. Oh, he's that smart. Really? Because really, he just looks like a big Neanderthal. Oh my god! And, but he's a he's a very smart guy. I would not want to get in front of you or Jocko or David Goggins in an alley. I could tell you that for sure. That is not something I want to go through. So um, Jim Collins famously stated that good is the enemy of great, and for the most part, the ninety nine percent settle for good. 
uh, a good enough job, a good enough body, relationship. But my listeners, the Seven Hatters, don't settle for good. They don't settle for good enough. They are the 1% who seek greatness. But then there's the Navy SEALs. The 1% of the 1% who don't just settle for greatness, they strive to win it all and at any cost. And one thing I noticed with great interest in recent years, I think, is how successful ex-SEAL team members have been when they start businesses. Perhaps if we understand SEALs a little bit better, we can understand you know, why they seem to be so suited to leading a business. So let's help the Seven Hatters understand the journey from a civilian to a SEAL. Can you take us through the steps? I know you went, you gave us a little bit of, a, of an overview, but can you take us through the steps from inquiry to enrollment to BUDS, which is basic underwater demolition SEAL training? It's changed a little bit, but the, but the foundation is still there. So you, you join the Navy, you have to, back when I joined, you had to pick a, a Navy-specific job because that's how you advance in the Navy, this Navy-specific job. And it's very much focused on uh, big Navy, like those big gray ships that float around in the ocean. Uh, and so my job was gunner's mate, which you would think has to do with guns. It does, but the big guns that are on big Navy ships, it's really pneumatics, electronics, and hydraulics. It really has like, of the six-month course that I went through, it was six, I'm sorry, six-month course. It was uh, five months and three weeks of electronics, pneumatics, and hydraulics, and one week of small arms. So the really cool stuff that you really kind of wanted to do was like one week and you didn't really cover that much. Like this is a pistol, this is a rifle, this is maybe how you take them apart and and maybe keep inventory of them. Like it was, there was nothing really to do with guns. And then you have to screen to go into, to become a SEAL. So you have to volunteer, first of all, because it's a volunteer program. You you go to SEAL training. You have four phases of SEAL training. So the, the fourth phase, which is the first phase, the fourth phase is where they kind of, uh, collect everyone into into like a class. It's but waiting and kind of train you up to get ready to start the first phase. So they teach you how to do drown proofing, which is where you're tied up, hands and feet tied together, uh, and you survive in the in the water. You jump in the water. You have to you know bob up and down uh, in about nine and a half feet of water. Uh, then you have to do uh, float without moving. You're tied up, let hands and feet. Uh, then you swim a hundred yards. You come back and you bob again, and then you have to go down and like do a front flip underwater and bob some more, back flip underwater, bob some more, and then go down with your teeth and pick your mask up off the bottom of the pool and then bob some more. And I saw just like that's it's not that hard once you get comfortable being in that situation. Sometimes you just have to be comfortable. Uh, like it's a cliche be comfortable, uh, get comfortable being uncomfortable, but it's like they're not gonna let you die, they're not gonna let you drown, they're not gonna let anything terrible happened to you but you i watched guys get in that situation they maybe got a little water in their mouth and rather than just like kind of trying to relax and like blow all their air out go to the bottom come back up and then get try to get their breath again they just started kind of freaking out and like kicking around and screaming for help and 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 i remember one guy was right next to me he was a stud he was a fantastic runner swimmer he could fly around everything and everything just seemed so easy for him and he was doing that really well. And he got a little water in his mouth. And so we had our feet tied, but our hands were free. So we're still practicing. And the instructor's sitting right, standing right there. And I watched the kids start freaking out. And I'm like, I, I want to tell him what to do. And he's like, help, I, I need help. I, I'm drowning. And so he's holding his hands by his, behind his back. You know, at some point, the instructor's like, he's like, okay, all you got to do is say, I quit and I'll pull you out. And I wanted to tell the guy, let go of your hands and grab the pool. 
but I, number one, like I don't have that much air, like coming up to the surface, uh, in order to go back down and come up again. I also, the instructor sitting right there, I didn't want to get in trouble. So I, <laughs> you know, I didn't want a little extra help. It's already was hard enough for me. So he was like, I quit, I quit. And then that's exactly what the instructor told him. Uh, it was like, okay, let go of your hands and grab the side of the pool. And he felt like an idiot. And for a long time, a lot of years, I felt bad for him because of that. Like he broke under stress. Like he broke under the stress of that. That's exactly what that situation is built for. And then later on, I stopped feeling sorry for him because I realized like if he broke under that little bit of stress, and I, I understand like water and drowning and like it's, it's scary. Then where else is he going to break? What other places is he not going to like perform? Like he's a fantastic athlete. He was a super smart guy. He was a great leader. Like I was looking up to him and then he like got a little water. He freaked out and he quit. So that was, you know, kind of a, a lesson of like you, it's, it's a lesson of it's a selection process and there's a reason for it. It's not made for everyone. I told you in the beginning that anyone can do it. I believe anyone can do it. You just have to want to do it. And I had that guy in the back of my mind a lot of times when I would like choke on water and I'm like, nope, just relax, get, you know. And so it was like, it was valuable for me to have him have that experience. Unfortunately, he didn't make it. But fourth phase is where they teach you like how to swim with fins and how to do underwater knot tying and do all these other like uh, get you ready for the test that you're going to be tested for in, in first phase. And then you, then that's for really, once the class is formed up, it's two weeks of like sort of ramp up and then you start first phase and first phase is really like the beat down where like the biggest attrition happens. It's where, uh, most guys quit. It's where that, that most infamous week of buds is, which is hell week. Uh, hell week for me was the fifth week. So you lose about 70% of the class up until hell week. And then you lose another 70% of that, whatever was left over during hell week. And then whatever you have after hell week is, you know, most of those guys are going to graduate. So either whether, unless they get hurt or something weird happens. And we've had guys that didn't graduate because of performance or, or they failed academics or they failed the, the second phase of, of buds, which is called pool is, uh, is the dive phase. And there's an event in, in second phase that I thought personally was harder than, than hell week. You know, I, I enjoyed hell week. It took me, you know, budget six months long. It took me a short 13 months to get through because I kept getting hurt. I could broke some bones and then, you know, they're getting ready to kick me out. And I'm like, hold on, please don't let me go because, you know, it took the CNO to get me here. And they like, let me stay one more class. And, uh, so when it was time for me to class up into that class, I had no choice. Like I just went through it broken. Like I was limping the whole time, passing four mile time runs, swims, the oak, like I passed just enough to, I made the minimum standard and then, you know, got into hell week. And once I got into hell week, I was like, I was happy. Like nothing will make me quit. But a lot of guys really suffered in hell week, struggled because they're like, it's like five and a half days of nonstop, no sleep. You're, you're wet and miserable the whole time. And but there's one thing that's constant during Hell Week that will never, ever change is that they feed you four times a day. So it doesn't matter how miserable life is. It doesn't matter how unattainable some thing is. All you have to do is make it to that next meal. Just create these small victories and make it to the next meal. You could be laying in the Pacific Ocean, locked arms with your buddies, you know, jackhammering uncontrollably. They're going to get you up at some point and they're going to run you around and warm your body back up. And then they're going to take you to go eat again. And then you get to like sit down and maybe, you know, put some food in your body be dry and warm for a, an hour and then back at it. So all you got to do is just make it to that next meal really at the end of the day. So that's hell week. 
And then you roll into uh, second phase, which is dive phase. And there's an event in, in dive phase. A lot of guys, some guys wash out because of the academics, because you, you have to do like some math and, and things like that. You do like dive medicine, dive physics. Uh, you have to plan dives. And some guys don't pass that. Then there's another, the next really hard evolution is called pool comp. And you have like this Jacques Cousteau style twin 80s uh, scuba tanks on your back with like a Jacques style uh, regulator. And the instructors come down and they attack you from the surface. You're crawling along the bottom and they're like tying your hose in knots. It's like kind of like underwater jujitsu, only you're not allowed to fight back. And they tie your hoses in knots and they give you all these problems. You have to like solve them, but it's not just solve the problem. You have to solve it in the order in which they want you to. It's very much pay attention to detail under high stress situation, which I don't have any air in my lungs. I'm on a breath hold. Uh, this really sucks a lot. And that's all they're looking for is like, how are you going to deal with this stress? And at the end of that, they put your, you, they tie your hose into what they call a whammy knot, which is a knot that you can't untie. Well, somehow I untied three whammy knots and then they, they passed me because, you know, I didn't really want to do the last part of it. My thought process, someone said, Hey, if there's air, if there's a bubble, there's air. So I would work on the knot and I would like, there's a bubble. I'd get a little bit of air and then I would, okay, work on it some more, more. And I like, that's just what I did. I didn't like, I never got to a point where I couldn't solve the problem. Because they want you to go through this whole other procedure where you like, okay, then you're like, you're on the bottom, uh, you ask permission to go to the surface, the instructor is watching you, he gives you permission, then you like take your tanks off, you do these other procedures, then he swims down there. And before you take your weight belt off the back of your legs and put it across your tank, you ask permission again to go to the surface. That's a lot of breath holding and a lot of brain work. I didn't want to do all that. And so he gives you permission the second time. Then you take your weight belt up from across the back of your legs, lay it on your tank. You kiss the bottom of the pool and you open your mouth completely wide open. You blow all the air out because if you're breathing compressed air at depth and you come to the, hold your breath and come to the surface, you'll embolize yourself. That's going to ruin your day. That's going to make the instructors look bad. Like they didn't teach you the right thing to do. Uh, that you also will probably fail the evolution because you didn't, you didn't follow procedures. Uh, and so the instructor on the way to the surface, he's going to give you a good punch in the gut just to make sure all the air comes out of your lungs uh, before you head to the surface. So that's, that is, and, and I, I can tell you more seals will tell you than not, will tell you that that evolution was harder than hell week. Wow. I'm probably going to be the loudest because I, I hated that evolution. And then you go, you, then you learn how to dive on a closed circuit rig, which is hundred percent O2. You have no bubbles. Uh, you learn how to navigate underwater. You learn how to plan dives, navigate underwater, and, uh, and then from there you go into land warfare phase where you learn about, you know, how to do demolitions. You learn how to, you know, basic weapon safety. Then you learn how to do some, some, it's still very basic, but we call it shoot, move and communicate. So if you're out patrolling in an area and a bad guy pops up and they start shooting at you, it, they teach you the basics of how to break contact and how to maneuver your forces, you know, looking at the battlefield, seeing what's going on maneuver your forces accordingly. And, you know, when you have people shooting and running around all at the same time, it needs to be a very controlled environment uh, before you can, and like at the most basic level before you can become more advanced. And so they teach the, the most basics of land warfare from like throwing grenades to blowing stuff up to claymores and all sorts of other stuff. And then from there you, you graduate, you know, somewhere in there, there's some, some longer runs, like a 14 mile run, uh, a 10 mile, like ruck, ruck run. Uh, there's a seven mile ocean swim, uh, in second phase that we actually had to do twice, which wasn't awesome. Wow. Like we, 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 they put us in the water against the current. 
So it's in, it's in Coronado, California. Yep. And you, some classes, they would either do like, uh, they would get in at Coronado, they would swim south towards Imperial Beach and then turn around and swim back. Or they would get in at Coronado and swim south to Imperial Beach and get out at the, at the pier. Or they would go, go to Imperial Beach, get in and swim north to back to Coronado. And that's what we did. We got in the water, we started swimming north to Coronado, and the current was going the opposite direction. It was going against us. It was like, and the water was cold because I snuck a Snickers bar in my wetsuit uh, and about an hour or so into the swim. And there's some landmarks on land, so you can kind of know where you are. I like, I asked my swim buddy if he wanted to, you know, to split this Snickers bar. The Snickers bar was frozen. It was against my skin when I'm working and it was frozen. So we ate it. And by the time we looked up, we noticed that we were about, uh, we were many hundreds of yards south from where we started and from where we started eating. We're like, oh, that's not good. So we, you know, started swimming again and we didn't finish the swim. There were so many people that, that had to stop the swim from hypothermia. Like we were, I was 200 yards from the buoy, from the finish line. And they were like, get out of the water. You failed the swim, get out. And so, wow. uh, the next, that was on a Friday. And then they told us how terrible we were. And Monday we came in how terrible you, you guys suck and you can't do this and whatever. And so they're like, we were getting ready for a dive and they're like, Nope, no dive. Go get your wetsuit on, get your, be on the beach in 10 minutes. And we had to go do the swim all over again. It was like, none of us wanted to do it. Were you, were you comfortable in the water when you first joined or did you learn? I, I would say I'm comfortable in the water. I'm not a great swimmer, but I'm, and it's funny. Most seals are not awesome swimmers. Like people think that we're great swimmers. We're not. Some guys are, some guys are really good swimmers. I am an average swimmer. I I call myself an average swimmer uh, at best, but I'm comfortable in the water. Like I, I don't have like the best breath hold, but I can get in the water and I can swim for as long as I need to. I'm, I'm just not, you know, super efficient and super fast. What, uh, what did you learn about yourself during buds? Uh, I learned that it's a good question. I lots of lessons. What I think the biggest, like lesson I learned about myself physically is there's always, you always have more in the tank. It doesn't matter like how tired you are, how exhausted, how whatever, like how much my legs are burning or my gut or my lungs, like how like much on fire my body is, I can still go. And I learned that I think probably mostly in, in hell week is I think when I really learned and I learned it a couple other times also, but there was a boat crew in hell week. It was boat crew three. And I noticed very early on that those guys were winning a lot of races. Like Sunday, I'm like, Boku 3 won again? Who are these guys? By Monday afternoon, we had lost enough people. They had to reshuffle the boat crews because they were like, there's seven guys in a boat crew and I'm about six foot. So you line up in a height line and they go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, boat crew one, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, boat crew two. And so I was like, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five. Okay. I'm going to be like, I'm going to, I'm standing on sand. I can be as tall or short as I need to be in order to be in this boat crew. And I looked around and I was like, it's all just a bunch of average dudes. Like there's no superstars in this boat crew. What is going on? And what I found is they all just had this unspoken desire to suffer in the front. And so I was part of the boat crew now. Like my job is to like win just like they were winning before. It didn't matter how bad my legs were hurting, like how much I was gimping along, how much my lungs were on fire. My job was to keep up because if I quit on myself right now and I slow down, I'm slowing down the whole boat crew. And so I'm like, I can't do that. Like that was some personal pride. I'm like, I have to keep going. Although this sucks a lot. I'm super uncomfortable. But what I learned is, you know, being with this group of, of people, these men that just wanted to like win everything, 
you know, it was always better. We're all suffering, but it was always better to suffer in the front, like win the race than it was to suffer in the back. You can either quit or keep going. And then you can either keep going and be awesome or keep going and just be average. So we kept going and we were awesome. And we actually like, we won almost every single race so much that they, they secured our boat crew like several hours early at the end of hell week. They're like, okay, you guys won everything. Uh, we're going to punish the rest of the class and you guys go, go take a break. You guys, you guys are done with hell week. Who was leading the boat crew? Um, you know what? It was a kid that did not graduate. Really? Yep. Interesting. Why do you think that is? Honestly, either there's some bad luck in there and there was some mistaken identity. So he was a kid that he went to buds before. I don't remember why he washed out. I think he got injured, broke a leg or something. He came back. He was a like a good enough performer. Uh, and then we were in, on, in third phase. We were out on San Clemente Island, which is where you spend really the last month of buds doing all the demo stuff and, and shoot, move and communicate. And we had some Singaporeans in our class they're not held to the same standard as Americans. They're just there as sort of like go through the process and do it. They can quit whenever they want and they just put them right back in the class. They don't have to, you know, make the numbers that everyone else makes. This is what I believe is that one of the instructors saw one of the Singaporeans like skipping obstacles or going around something. And they thought it was this kid newcomer. You know, this is one of those like regrets where if I could go back in time, I would go in like, I don't believe that it was him. I mean, I've been with him like for the last eight months and he's a, you know, he puts out, he performs, he like, he tries hard, he has integrity and I didn't, you know, again, some of it's like, I'm just trying to get through and they're going to kick me out. And I was kind of in survival mode a lot. So that was, that's something that I, you know, I, I truly regret that, that he, I believe he got kicked out. I, I didn't see him do it. I didn't see the Singaporeans do it. I saw them cheat on other stuff. So I don't know. It's just my my belief is that I, I believe that he probably should have made it and he didn't. And maybe I could have done something about it. Maybe not. Yeah. It makes sense that so many don't make it. But in terms of your mindset, was there a time that you were literally a hair away from quitting? And never. if so, never. So like, no matter what, never, you never thought I will, I will tell you that my one moment of weakness was it was Thursday morning of hell week where they actually let us sleep, which was the worst thing they could have possibly done to us. Like that was the most amount of torture really humanly possible. So Wednesday night, uh, they said, go in your tents, like these big army tents on the beach with cots, lay down on your cot and do not go to sleep. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> That's not possible. Uh, so, so I lay down, I try to stay awake. I fall asleep. And the next thing you know, it's probably two hours later. They like the instructors, what the heck? Who say, say sleep? La, 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 la. So now I'm like, I'm dry for like the first time really wow. in, in a week. My body has started to like swell up and it's like very hard to move around. And I'm like, and I kind of like, okay, shake it off and get outside and line up and get in your place. And again, I'm like, okay, boat crew, one, two, three, four, just to make sure that I'm getting in the right boat crew, uh, one, two, three, four, five, seven. And this was the first time that I noticed that we had lost so many people. Like we had a big class and then it was like not very many people, but it was so foggy that day. And again, Southern California, people are like, oh, the, the water is so beautiful and warm and sunny. It is not. not. <laughs> no. It is not. And I'm looking and I'm like, where did everyone go? I remember thinking this. And then I look at the ocean. And it's so foggy, I can't see the ocean. And it's like 20 yards away. It's right there. And so I get him out, like, just make sure that I'm in the right boat crew. And they do the count off. And they're like, all right, go get wet. And we're going to go to breakfast. And I'm like, I run out to the ocean and I'm dry. And the ocean is frigid. And I'm like, don't 
want to do this, but I just grabbed myself. I physically grabbed my, my shirt and I just like threw myself down into the water. I'm like, this is not an option. Like quitting is not an option. Not do like, just do it. Let's go. Uh, so that was my, like maybe like a point of weakness. It was like, I didn't want to get wet, but I'd never really, most of the time wanted to get wet, but it was like, just do it, man. Just get it over with and let's go. So what happens after you graduate, you become an operator, you know, you're part of the teams. What's the day to day like, and are those guys now supportive or do they try to break you up again? You're actually not an operator just because you graduated seal training does not make you a seal. So it's again, it's a little different now. Uh, because now you you graduate buds and then you go into a pipeline, which is they call it steel tactical training, where you learn some more uh, advanced skill sets. So when I graduated, uh, I went to Army Airborne School where I learned how to fall down for three weeks before they let me jump out of an airplane. And then I went to the team and I went to like sort of the the advanced training. Uh, and I, I did not have a trident on my chest when I when I showed up at the team. Um, but now the way they do it is they, they put guys through this pipeline of more advanced training. So they teach them how to, you know, do static line, how to jump out of an airplane where the, air, where the uh, parachute opens behind you for one week, where it took me three weeks, uh, before, and then the rest the next three weeks, they teach you how to do free fall, like really skydive. Uh, they send guys up to Alaska to do, uh, uh some survival training, cold weather training in the, in the wintertime. Uh, and, you know, just get some different land navigation skills under their belt. Uh, then they go to go out into the desert and they learn how to do more advanced shoot, move and communicate more advanced tactics. They learn how to do more land warfare stuff. They learn how to do close quarters combat. They learn how to do more advanced diving skills rather than just doing following a, a, a compass going straight out and then turning around and coming straight back to see how much your variance is. Uh, they actually start doing actual real mission planning, hitting real ships, maybe taking, you know, bombs and putting them on the side of ships uh, there in, in the San Diego Bay or some sort of tracking device or something like that. And then once they graduate from there, they get their trident. But when I did it, I we did all of that stuff. So I went to I, I, I went to Fort Benning. I learned how to fall down for three weeks before I got to jump out of an airplane. Then I uh, went to SEAL tactical training. And I learned all those advanced skills. I went down to uh, Puerto Rico. We had a base down there. We, I learned how to dive, came back. And then I was on probation for a year at the SEAL team before that I was ever awarded my Trident. So uh, I was on probation. I was doing the full workup with everyone else. And at the end of the year, if they thought I was worthy, then I had to take a uh, go before a board. And it was very you know intense where... I had to, you know, put crypto into radios. I had to load radios. They're not, they're not super simple. It's not like using your iPhone, you know, take weapons apart while, you know, reciting different points of performance. Talk about like, you know, the seven points of performance of, of, of jumping out of an airplane, covering all like the basic skill sets and be really being an expert at it while being grilled and doing stuff by the board. And if you pass, then you get awarded your trident. So that was back then. Does everybody go on probation or is it just, was it just you? It was no, it's everyone. It's it was it was like across the board. Got it. And so, where were you deployed in general uh, after you you made it and you got your trident? What where did you serve? Pre pre nine eleven, uh, we mostly deployed to my team. Deployed to Rota, Spain, and then from there we would go and we would do different exercises and training events with others like soft special forces that were in those areas um, around around the European theater. Post 9-11, I deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq. I have seven combat deployments between those, those two areas. Uh -huh. 
Uh, but I, you know, got other deployments in, in other places that we don't really talk about. <laughs> or maybe they didn't happen. Yeah, you'd have to kill me. I get it. Um, <laughs> so you became a sniper. You even taught SEAL sniper school. How is that different from yeah. the other specialties uh, in the teams? I will tell you that SEAL sniper school was almost as hard as BUDS. Wow. Just in a different way. I mean, it was very physical. It was six and a half days a week, or it was six days a week up in. So there was a, like a comms part. So they, they took a three month block of training to teach you how to like really talk on radios and be a communicator uh, and how to program them and do all the stuff from like doing UHF and VHF and HF and like all the different disciplines of being a, a comms guy. And they shoved that into two weeks. That was the first two weeks of seven days a week. So it was 14 days straight. And then we went from there up to up to uh, Camp Atterbury, Indiana, which is where we our, our sniper school is. And it was pretty much from 5 a.m. till about 10 o'clock at night, just go and you perform or you go home. And that was really the way it was. But the interesting part about our SEAL sniper course, as it compares to other organizations that have sniper, like the Army has a sniper course, the Marine Corps has a sniper course. There's a bunch of people who have sniper courses out there. I have people, I have friends that have gone to those courses and they're like, they're just there really trying to get rid of people. In the SEAL teams, if you've been chosen to go to this school, they're going to do everything as an instructor. I'm going to do everything that I can to give you the tools to pass and become the best, like a better version of, of, of a sniper than I ever was. So that's my job. Like it's up to you to do the work, but my job is to teach you and give you the tools to do it. Those other services, their job is to get rid of as many people, which doesn't compute to me. Like we're, we're all in this together. Let's like, let's make people better. So how good were you? How, how far away can you hit somebody in between the eyes? There's a lot of factors that go into shooting long, long range so much that we had, it, there was a guy there's, I think he's still up there. He would take his, he's a, an, he would never served in the military. He was an NRA, like national masters shooter, like with iron sights. And he would come and he would help teach marksmanship to, 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 you know, all these seals. And it's a misnomer that all seals are really good shots. We're not, uh, we're good at a lot of things. Um, some of us are better shooters than others, but so what we do when we need to learn a new skill set is we'll go out and find someone who's really, really, really good at that. Whether it doesn't matter if you're, you know, you're, you need to learn how to learn how to climb like the side of a building in, you know, downtown Baghdad or solder city or whatever, we'll go out and we know that that mission is coming. We'll go and find like the best climbers and we'll hire them to teach us, like give us the tools and techniques to scale these buildings that where the, you know, the, the wall could actually fall on us while we're trying to climb it and give us those techniques, you know, with full combat equipment, guns, body armor, bullets, all that good stuff. I would say I'm, I'm a pretty good shot, but there's a lot of factors that go into, into shooting long range. So the gun has to, you know, have certain capabilities. So the gun needs to be able to shoot a certain, without anyone touching it, no outside forces, it needs to be able to shoot a certain degree of error. So I can put 10 rounds through it with like, just put it in a vice and it shouldn't make more than a one inch group of, of holes uh, out of those 10 shots. So now the gun is at a certain capability. Now you have to take into consideration like everything that happens externally, external ballistics from the time the bullet leaves the barrel until it hits its target. So all sorts of physics start taking coming into 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 play. You have the bullet is spinning, the spiral of the bullet. Uh, you have the like for super long range. You have the the spin of the earth that you may or may not take into consideration. You have whatever windage is going out there, barometric pressure, 
all sorts of temperature affects the, you know, the muzzle velocity or the velocity of the bullet. All that being said, I can easily hit a man in the chest at a thousand yards. Wow. Pretty consistently. That's crazy. And, and I mean, there are, there are anomalies out there. Like sometimes it's luck and sometimes, you know, all the, all, everything just works out well. You pointed out something very interesting right now when you stated that if you want to excel it in something, if you want to be the best in something, you got to go find someone who is better than you and train with them. And I think for entrepreneurs, that's key. Something to, for them for them to think about. And this is why I have two different business coaches. Exactly. And even a SEAL, even a SEAL needs a business coach. So the 20th anniversary of 9-11 was just a few days ago. And it's hard to believe that it's been 20 years. I mean, I remember watching the buildings fall. I was actually teaching sniper school when it happened. Wow, that's crazy. So you were you were teaching sniper. Where where were you in in teaching? In, 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 in Indiana. Indiana. Okay. So you were watching it on TV, right? In in real time. Yeah. How did how did that make you feel? How did it affect you? Oh, just like some of it is surreal. Like that can't really be real. Number one, who would ever conceptualize that twenty different guys would hijack four different airplanes and conduct a suicide mission and fly them into the World Trade Center, fly them into the Pentagon, fly them, you know, into whatever, wherever the the last plane was supposed to go uh, before those passengers heroically took took charge of that plane and 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 made it crash uh, to to overtake the the, the hijackers. Um, like it, it took me a while to conceptualize that. It was like certainly a, a pit in my gut uh, that was, you know. Even when I watch it today, I can't like I can't watch that. Like it's too visceral of a of a reaction that I get. And you know, I think my last Instagram post, I just like just put the twin towers uh, with the Statue of Liberty and I a picture of the Pentagon, and I wrote like the uh, like the the times of attack, like those those significant times. And I'm like, I can't like lots of people put like you know the planes flying in. I'm like, I can't watch that. Like it's like there's still more work to be done. There's still people out there that want to do that to us right now. And uh, yeah. Absolutely. So it's been, you've been there for a while. You probably lost a lot of people that you, that you knew. Yeah. Uh, how does it make you feel now with uh, us leaving Afghanistan? I think we always needed to leave. It's not the fact that we left. It's just the way that it took place is not, not awesome. Yeah. So you're, 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 in that, so you're, that. you're in that camp. Got it. Yeah. Not awesome. We don't have to talk more. I get what you're saying. <laughs> so what were your fears? Uh, did you feel like you shouldn't have them because you were a seal? Cause I know you had fears. There's, there's no way that you didn't have fears. No, I had, I had lots of fears, but so I did have a trick. I had a secret weapon of sorts that uh, most other guys didn't have when, you know, going into harm's way and things like that is when I was 15, I was shot hunting with my great uncle. My great uncle actually shot me. And so I was pretty messed up from that, but no big deal. Uh, so my thought process was, you know, I don't, I'm okay trading bullets with someone, no big deal. Because my thought was, dude, I've been shot before you, the rest of you guys, you haven't been, so you're probably screwed. Yeah. But, uh, when, when things started blowing up around us now, I like, it's, it's a different, it's a different ball game. I'm like, I have not been blown up before. This is like my, my advantage is gone. This is not okay. So, uh, but yeah, there was, there was one night I remember we were, uh, in Baghdad driving to a target and I remember, so there was a, a big gunfight going on over here. There was a, a bunch of army guys. They kind of announced on the radio. We're sitting in the back of these Humvees that are like pickup trucks, 
Uh, there's, you know, you could see like the explosions and like the tracer fire going all around and like, Oh, that's cool. Maybe we'll go get in some of that. Maybe we'll see. And, and then we, we come around the corner and I see a, an Iraqi police officer. It's not like American police officer, right? The, Iraq, it's all tribal. Like you can be wearing a uniform, but you actually answer to the Sheikh or the local guy in your tribe. So we come around the corner, it's about one o'clock in the morning. And the guy like picks up his phone and starts and gets him. And I'm like, that's something is not right there. I feel like I should shoot that guy, but I didn't really have a good reason to. And it wasn't 45 seconds later, maybe a minute later. We're driving, we're under, like we drive at night, very, very fast, very kind of erratically. We know what we're doing with no lights on. We're only on night vision goggles. And now we're driving down a street in the middle of, of Baghdad and we're under street lights. And I'm like, we can't like shoot them out fast enough because we're like moving out and gunfire, like people are shooting at us over here. We can't see them because we're under the streetlights. And then boom, like 15 feet away, like it went between our vehicles. And what it was, was it was a, an EFP, an explosive force penetrator. So it's a, uh, a piece of copper, uh, like a, like a dome and they pack explosives behind it. And when they, when they detonate the explosive, the explosive train goes down and it turns that copper uh, plate sort of inside out and it, and it creates this like molten uh, copper projectile and it'll cut through just about any armor on the planet. And the uh, when we would do stuff and we would drive around in, in some of the armored vehicles that the army had, they actually figured out if they filled their 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 gas cans, their jerry cans, plastic cans with, with sand and put them around the truck, those EFPs would not puncture through the sand. And so, boom, it went off. And I could tell by the way that it it went off and I was like looking right at it when it, when it went off. And then I was like, Oh, that's not cool. More gunfire. And we can't see who we're, who's shooting at us. And then like five more seconds, boom, even closer. And it just went between right behind my vehicle and the vehicle that was behind us. So it like, it just missed us. So if we weren't like hauling the mail and driving as fast and as erratic as erratic as we were, definitely we would have gotten hit. I might not be standing here right now talking to you. Did you feel like you shouldn't have those fears though? because you were a seal or no, no. Um, and it was interesting. I kind of, where I was going with that is, um, there was a, so in the back of the truck, it was like three senior guys. I was a senior guy, two other senior guys and a junior guy who was, this was his second deployment. And he was like, so guys, what do you, what do you guys think about maybe getting down lower in the truck? And all of us were like, kind of like ego and whatever. We don't want to look scared. And we're like, I'm like, thank the Lord for you, George. And we all just like all kind of got down super low. Like just our little helmets are kind of poking up and we're kind of scanning the sky. But I was like, okay, so it was, it's okay. Uh, sometimes you just got to be brave enough to be scared. I think that's was kind of a lesson there. Like, just be brave enough. It's not a big deal. No one's going to judge you. <laughs> like if you like wilt under like pressure, like if someone is shooting at you, you're like, oh, and you hide, like that's a different story. If someone is trying to blow you up and you can get behind a little more cover, that's a different, yeah, do it, save your own life and then take care of the enemy. Well, I'd love, I'd love to get to kind of the next uh, chapter of lessons learned, but I'm going to ask one more question about the seal. And this is only if you feel comfortable answering it. Sure. Uh, can you tell us what's the worst thing that happened to you in your years as a seal? I would say losing, losing my friends, losing my brothers. Like I, like I still see, like I see someone that looks like them and I'm like, Josh, Sam, like, that's really like the, the worst, worst thing is really losing friends. 
some some of it is losing friends to to combat but the worst really is when i lost friends to suicide mm. because there's this like there's a like a real epidemic in in the nation where uh in this kind of a mission of, of naked aware recovery is you know 22 veterans take their own lives every single day we've lost more veterans to yep. suicide than we have to 20 years of sustained combat and actually wow. uh, as of march i'm sorry november of 2020 new numbers came out and said they estimate those that 22 to actually be 26 so one of our one of our missions here at naked warriors recovery is to help uh reduce that number from from 22 to zero yeah we'll definitely talk about that uh in a bit and it's just interesting because i lost my a really good friend to suicide last year um and it's just it's it's and you know i never really i didn't really put two and two together but my dad committed suicide oh wow while i was on active duty so while you were in active duty he committed suicide uh yeah like wow. right after I graduated from SEAL training. And I never and I never put that together. I was actually on a podcast with a couple other buddies and we were all talking and we're kind of like being a little bit vulnerable. And who like two guys that I don't consider vulnerable at all, but we we're just kind of being kind of vulnerable on a podcast. And then that, like that just came out of me and I was like, holy shit. I don't mean to swear on your podcast, but I was like, I, you know what? And they were like, really? Like, I didn't know that about you. I was like, well, I didn't really. Um, yeah, so that's the deal. So now it's out there. Wow, that that's crazy. Cause so now I can talk about it. So was it a complete surprise that he committed suicide? Yeah, I mean, I didn't even know. Like, I was I had graduated SEAL training. I was I was uh, going to a school to learn how to drive uh, uh, mini submarines, and we were just about to graduate. We we're two or three days before graduation, and I was going to drive from California back to Mississippi. And uh, instructors called me aside and were like, "Hey, your dad was uh, your dad died. He was in a, in a car accident." So that's what I'm thinking on the way there. He really died in the car, but it wasn't an accident. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing because uh, my friend Albert, you just, it was a complete surprise. He was the most positive. I mean, the guy was working out every day, taking 100 supplements a day. One of the most positive um, people that I knew. I just, it's, it's amazing what, what kind of mindset you have to be in, you know, to take that, that action where you have no faith that life is worth it, you know, going, going forward. So thank you for sharing that and, and, and being vulnerable. Yeah. And, and most of my friends that have, have taken their own lives, you, you never would know, never would know. You would never, ever know. Like the most, the, the like happiest, like, like, just like every time they see you, it's like the first time they've seen you. Even if you saw them yesterday, they're like, Oh, it's, it's so awesome to see you. And you're like so positive and upbeat. And I'm like, you have so much positive energy. I wish I could be more like you. Yeah. But a lot of times I've, I've learned that a lot of those people, they have some darkness, you know, kind of back there in the back of their minds. So. They do. And with 2020 and, you know, and all this stuff going on right now, uh, PTSD is not just for military. You know, there's right. a lot, of, lot yeah. going on right now. And 100%. I'm really happy that you're taking action and you're helping. And so thank you for that. Thank you. Um, so let's let's go to lessons learned. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, you wrote an, uh, an e-book uh, titled uh, Five Seal Secrets uh, Learn to Think Like a Navy Seal. Yes, sir. Uh, where you distilled some of your greatest success lessons learned in your 26 years, right? 26 yes, years uh, being a veteran. What I found interesting is that you began with the following, and this is a quote. Since you downloaded this free report, I think it's safe to assume that you want to learn how to think like a Navy SEAL. But my question for you is why? What difference do you think it will make in your life and or business if you thought more like a Navy SEAL? You know, I thought that question was really awesome because if you're really honest, us mere mortals, do we really want to think like a Navy SEAL? And if so, why? That is a, that is a fine question. 
Um, I was a was a Navy SEAL for 26 years, really 23 of them, my 26 years, but 26 is just easier to say. And I still want to think more like a Navy SEAL. And I and I wrote this these lessons down as a, you know, to kind of help me. Because when I transitioned from the military into civilian life, I say that that was the hardest military mission I've ever been on because I had a mission, I had a team, I had I was uh, surrounded by professionals, I had like purpose. When I retired, and it wasn't because I wanted to retire, it was because like they're like, okay, an E8 at 26 years, your time is your time is up. Let the new blood come in and, and take over. It's not because I wasn't providing value. It's just like that's the way that the system works. And so I retired from the military and I realized I had no team, I had no purpose, I had no mission, I had no nothing. And so I had a bunch of I had baggage. I don't call it PTS or PTSD, I call it baggage. And you know, and we all have baggage. So it doesn't matter who you are or what walk of life. Uh, we all we all have baggage, and how we manage that baggage is, you know, completely up to us. And you know, I was the way I was managing it was I was drinking myself to sleep at night to like turn down the noise in my head. And so CBD was sort of a modality that helped me quiet the noise, so I didn't drink as much to to get the sleep. And it wasn't like you know, it wasn't like I took CBD for the first time, and it was like oh, the rainbows and unicorns and angels singing and whatever. It was more like I, I took it just kind of because someone gave me some, I wanted it, but to try it, but someone gave me a bottle and, you know, I didn't notice a lot really in the beginning, but what I, what I like to say is water boils at 212 degrees. I was probably living at 210 degrees. Like lots of things can like set me off. And those triggers, those triggers are right there and they're right on the edge. And like they say hair trigger for a reason. Uh, and I noticed that over time, like I kind of just did a self-assessment at the end. I didn't know that I was like there at 210 degrees. I just noticed that I would like move from like 210 to 205 to 200 to 195 to 185. And like my, my, it just took me longer to get to those, that boiling point. I also noticed like some aches and pains in my body were just less bad. And then I stopped taking CBD because I ran out and then it started coming back. And then I took CBD again another brand. And I started getting similar results. So I was like, maybe there's something to this. I was at a business conference. I met someone in the industry. I really wanted her to hire me. And, uh, she said, she's like, so you want to do a to B, B to B, B to C. And I said, I want to do CBD. And she's (laughs) like, okay, yeah, I I hear you. But what do you want to do? And I'm like, really, I want to work for you. And she's like, I can't hire you right now because I'm not there. You know, maybe in a year or two, I'm like, so how do I, she's like, just start your own CBD company. And I was like, I don't know how to do that. And she's like, you're a Navy SEAL. Go figure yeah, it out. Exactly. Like, oh, oh, can I have my man card back? Please, please, ma'am. So, so that was the kind of the beginning of Naked Warrior Recovery. But what I realized is that CBD was just a modality. I still had a lot of work that I had to do. I still had this mental uh, piece, like the mental work that I had to do. And so that's why I came up with these five SEAL secrets and how I came up with the Get Naked mindset is, you know, I, I still look at my teammates who are, some are still in, some are out and what they're doing and the mentality that they have and, and lessons that they've, that they've shared with me and what I've shared with them. And, you know, we all kind of got together and I'm like, I want to think like a Navy SEAL and I am a Navy SEAL. So, you know, I wrote these things down really as a reminder for me, it, it's, it's really for me. And I'm like this, I think this can help other people. So why don't I share it with other people? And it's completely free. And I, and I've turned it into a keynote as well. So, you know, I can go to any business out there and I can give this keynote and, and, and I think that it will help people, um, to, 
change how they're they're thinking about challenges that they have in their life. So the end is that you know it's it's about getting naked. Uh, the end is for never quit, and I don't mean like you know never quit smoking or drinking or toxic relationships or things like that. It's, it's more like never quit on yourself, and that kind of also goes back to that that twenty two a day. Never quit on yourself. Never quit on if you started something, you should make every effort to complete it. It doesn't mean that it, like what you're going to complete is what you started to complete. You know, you may have to pivot along the way and, and adjust where you're going, but it's like create these small victories. So in, in SEER school, in POW school, they told us, you know, they take everything away from you, like all sensory, like sensory deprivation. They like, you know, don't feed you. You live in a box uh, and you have to use the bathroom in a, in a coffee can, like a one gallon, one pound coffee can. And, uh, and then they interrogate you and they beat you and they, whatever, you don't sleep. And what they tell you to kind of leading up to that is like, what you need to do is you need to find ways that you can find small victories. So, you know, if the, if the bad guys, the, the, the prisoners say, or, uh, the guards say, don't look left every opportunity you get, you should look left. Or they say, don't communicate with like another prisoner you should like when they're not looking you should like like poke them like if you happen to be around someone and communicate any way you can and like create these small victories and i kind of referred to it a little bit in a little bit earlier during hell week you know it doesn't matter how much it sucks all you got to do is make it to that next meal and you're going to get a break so you know never quit is is you know something that's unattainable becoming a navy seal seems unattainable it's one day at a time it's one step at a time just create those small victories just make it to that next meal uh, the A is accept failure. And that means, you know, failure to me, failure is the foundation of success. If you look at the most successful people in the world, uh, Michael Jordan, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Thomas Edison, Thomas Edison discovered 10,000 ways to not create the incandescent light bulb. Michael Jordan's missed more than 9,000 shots in his career, m- lost more than 300 games. But you know what he did every time that he, he, he missed a shot? whether he won or lost, he wouldn't celebrate. He would go back and he would practice that shot until he'd never miss it again in every scenario that he could. So failures was the key to his success. Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, they were both fired as CEOs of companies that they started and they came back even bigger and stronger and better. And so that's what I mean. Like failure is inevitable. You know, I look at it as a ladder, as a staircase. So you fail, you try to climb that wall, you can't get over it. You fail and then you fail again, but you're just like building these these, this foundation of failure and pretty soon you're just going to hop right over the wall and then you're a little bit further along for that next obstacle and a, the next obstacle. So you accept failure and, and you, it's, you're going to be fine. Uh, the chaos kill mediocrity because we live in this world of instant gratification of like swiping and scrolling and hit a, fo- a button on your phone to have ice cream delivered to your house in you know, 30 minutes or less. They're not going to make it out here to Hawaii in 30 minutes or less. Cause you know, be a little melty. Um, but that's the world that we live in. You know, there's a lot of talk about entitlement and all this other stuff. And those are the things that make us mediocre. And, you know, one of the hardest things that we can do is compete against, uh, or, or one of the things that can, that we can do to help us beat mediocrity in our own life is, is to compete against ourselves, to compete in kindness, to compete in giving, compete in, in, in generosity, compete in just like smile, out smile the person next to you. Compete against your ego, because if you can win against your ego, that thing that knows all of your deepest, darkest secrets and desires, if you can compete against that and you can win, then nothing can stop you. And you will improve the lives of the people around you. Uh, the E, let's see, what do I have here? Where am I? E is expose your fears. And, and I don't mean like lions and tigers and bears and spiders and things like that. I mean like those deep, dark fears that are in the back of your mind, those that you don't want to tell people about. They're in the dark place that you don't want to think about. But when you get in the car by yourself 
and your brain just starts, you know, churning or you're sitting up at night and your brain just starts churning. Those are the fears that I'm talking about. Those things that create incredible anxiety. I consider fear to be kind of like a vampire. So vampires, they live in darkness. And, you know, the way that you kill a vampire is you expose it to sunlight. Fear is the same way. If you're able to reach back into your brain and you can pull that fear out of that deep, dark place and you expose it, expose it to light. You know, a friend of mine, uh, Sharon Shrivatsa, he's also a business coach. He says fear does not exist on paper. So if you can take a pen and a pen or a pencil and a piece of paper and you can write down the things that are bothering you. Like he will be driving along and he's like, all of this stuff is going on. He'll pull over to a Starbucks, get a cup of coffee and uh, he'll just like pen and paper and write down the things that are bothering him. And he's like, what, that, that's really what's bothering me. So if you can somehow pull those fears out, expose them to light, expose them to someone else, then you will control the fear and the fear will no longer control you. And the D is to do the work because all of this is work. And this is something that you know, really was, was true for me in the, in the SEAL teams is I graduated SEAL training. I was like, so what's next? You know, I've, I've completed the hardest military training in the world. Everything is going to be easy from, from here on out. I didn't have the work ethic that I really needed. You know, I passed this, I was past the selection process. I wasn't a Navy SEAL. And so I quickly learned the reason that they say, earn your trident every day in the SEAL teams is because you have to earn your trident every day. It doesn't matter how good you are or how bad you are, every day you have to improve. You have to get better. And everyone on that SEAL team that is surrounding you expects you to be better than you were yesterday. Uh, and you expect that of them. So it's it's this really awesome uh, scenario where you have to get up every day and you have to do the work because it's not going to get done unless you actually do it. And so that's really what Get Naked is all about. Take your ego off, put it in the corner, and never quit except all your kill mediocrity, expose your fears, and do the work. They like acronyms in the military. I love acronyms. They do acronyms. like acronyms in the military. It's like, and you're not going to forget, get naked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have my own acronym, uh, IMPACT, but get naked is way sexier. So it's never quit, accept failure, kill mediocrity, expose your fears and do the work. Why do you put get before naked? It's about taking action. You know, you can say naked all day long, but you have to take action. And, and because, you know, we're in the SEAL teams, we're, 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 we want to think like a Navy SEAL. Navy SEALs take action. And so that's why you have to get naked. You have to take action and do it. Take action. Take the ego off. Take action. Take the ego off. Ab absolutely. You know, Churchill said plans are of little importance, but planning is essential. And Mike Tyson said famously, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. So what's the distinction for you between plans and planning? And is there any more important uh, aspect or, or theory to a sniper? Um, so I think planning is there's. I like to use the mission planning process that we use in the military. It goes something like you have the mission, you have uh, what you're going to do on the mission. And, you know, as a leader, maybe you make all of that. But generally what I would do is I would, as a leader, I would, I would push a lot of that down to the guys that are going to be doing it. You, and you, and you make the plan, you do the planning process, like talking about contingencies, like where, who's going to do what, where are you going to go? How are you going to do it? What if, what if, what if? And then you go out and you, you brief the plan and you go over those scenarios and those contingencies. And then you go and you do, this is where I think most people fail. Uh, this is really talking about transition. And what you do is you go out and you practice that plan. You're not practicing like for us, we, we, you know, we'll, we'll get in our vehicles with radios, but not weapons or anything else. And we will drive to an area that we set up 
and we'll do what we call a dirt dive or a rock drill. And everyone will get out, like they'll sit in the vehicle exactly where they're going to sit when they go do the mission. And then the vehicles, and we do the same calls over the radio, and then we stop, okay, get out. And then everyone gets out in, gets in line in the order of which we're going to do it at night, you know, in about five hours. And we practice, and then we practice going into a building. We don't have to practice actually clearing rooms or anything like that, but we practice making the calls over the radio so that everyone can hear it and feel it and see it. Uh, and then, okay. Uh, you know, call, you know, maybe we have, we make a call where we, we change targets like, okay, Intel has us going over here, check. So we move over there and we transition to this next target and then target secure, uh, SSE complete. Okay. Get back in your, you know, go back to your vehicles and we make the call for that. And then we, we have the vehicles do what they're going to go do. They line up in front of the building. Like we say, they're going to do it. And we get in the vehicle exactly where we're going to do it. And, and, and then we, leave and then we may go do that that uh, that rock drill that dirt dive again and practice those transitions because it's not the actions on the objective that really get us it's the transition the transition from going from a safe area to a dangerous area from going the vehicle to walking you know to the target uh from outside the target to inside the target from the target is secured to getting back to the vehicle like i can't tell you how many times we've almost lost people by like we're loaded getting ready to load the vehicles and then gunfire starts. We now we're getting ambushed because like, like somehow the enemy knew that this is the, our transition period. Like they've seen us like pull back our perimeter and like, and so now this is like the worst time. Is so we practice those transitions to make sure that we're not going to leave someone behind. We do. We keep everything absolutely basic, but it's really practicing those transitions, those dirt dives. Uh, it's really that planning before the actual execution. Great lessons there. So you've been an entrepreneur and a SEAL. So some of the best entrepreneurs are both strong and vulnerable. Was there any room for vulnerability in the teams? And is it any different in civilian business? Did you have to learn any new skills being a civilian? I'm, I'm, I'm still learning skills in, in business still uh, to this day. You know, I would say, yes, there's room for vulnerability in the SEAL teams, but there's not room for weakness. There's room for vulnerability. There's not room for weakness. I used to equate vulnerability to weakness. Like, I don't know how to do something. I was afraid to ask for help. So I would just go figure it out. It wasn't until like I was pretty senior that I was put into a position where I didn't know all the things that I felt like I should know, but I wasn't going to ask someone else. I just went and figured it out. So what I had to do is I just became more creative in how I was asking for help um, because I didn't want to be vulnerable. Like, I've never done this before. Can you teach me how to do it? So I got a bunch of other people together and, and, you know, I said, hey, let's go and let's learn like the latest and greatest of how to do this. Really, this was my first time to ever do it. But I didn't tell anyone that. I just like made, I made scenarios so that I could learn and the other people around me could learn. And then I became an expert so that I could teach it to the, to the lower guys. And I was, had a little more of a head start uh, over, you know, the guys that I was leading. So but as far as like, yeah, I, I think there's definitely room for, for vulnerability in the SEAL teams. There's just not room for weakness. If, you're, if, you, if you don't want to be there and you are not going to perform, then you can't be there. And that's really at the end of the day because the, the mission is so critical and you have all these other guys depending on you to be strong and make the right decision uh, because, you know, their life is in your hands. And I think, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs mistake vulnerability for weakness. And I think it's the same for entrepreneurs. 
you should be vulnerable, but you should not be weak. It's okay to ask for help. Yeah, exactly. So before we get to civilian life, I have one more question about war. So war is hell, as you know, and you see the worst in humanity, but it can also be a teacher. What are the lessons that war taught you? There are some amazing people in the world, like really kind and loving and giving. And there are some really ugly, terrible people in the world. I mean, just going back to 9-11 or let's not even use 9-11. Let's just use scenarios where some of these, these, the enemy, they would use uh, special needs kids who had no idea. They're not, they don't know what they're doing. And they would strap, you know, a bomb to their chest and send them into a restaurant and then detonate them. Like how disgusting of a person are you? Wow. If we ever rolled up on that bad guy's house and his wife was in there, she would be like, yep, take him away. I know he's a bad, a bad person. If we rolled up and we wrapped someone up who may or may not be bad, we're not a hundred percent sure, but you just happen to be in the area. And the, like, I could tell a lot by what the wife was doing. If she was like pleading, you know, unlock bar, like, please don't take my husband. Like he's a good man. La 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 la. He's probably a good man. So we're just going to go question him. We're going to do, and then he'll be fine. It's like, you know, he's not going to jail for life if he's a good person. Some of the people that helped us in, in some of the scenarios that they had pretty much nothing, but they're like, well, you're here to help me. So I'm going to help you. So I saw some really beautiful love and giving uh, in, in war. And I saw some of the most disgusting um, actions of, of humanity. Two sides of the coin. Both exist. 100%. So I think you, you mentioned earlier that the more difficult mission was transitioning to civilian life, right? And so the military yeah. trains you to go into war and to battle. Why right. don't they train you to go into civilian life, to battle civilian life? <laughs> That's a fine question. You know, they give you like a, a one week class that you're required to take. You know, a, like, a little okay, pamphlet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, a pamphlet. it's like Go. okay, this is kind of how you write a resume, and this is kind of how you do some other stuff. And like, I'm, a, you know, I work for the Department of Labor. They're not really like make sure your financials are right. You know, you have to do these spreadsheets and things like that. It doesn't prepare you. It doesn't prepare you for leaving. You know, especially for me, and I and I I've talked to many other veterans that have kind of experienced the same thing. Like I, this is all I've been known. My entire adult life has been in the military. I had mission, I had purpose, I had team, I had income. Now I have none of those things. I'm completely lost, and uh, I, and I don't know my value. And so for me, it was you know I started a company that I did okay with some stuff. What I what I learned. It was a, I called it a consulting company. I learned very quickly that that's not a word that a lot of companies want to hear uh, because other consultants have come before me and just sort of like burned, burned the company. So like, well, the consultant got a lot of money out of it and we got nothing out of it. I was like, okay, so I stopped calling myself a consultant. Uh, but I still had all these other issues that I was kind of dealing with. And I live on a rock in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So networking is a little bit harder uh, out here. But I had, you know, I, I did some stuff that, but it was... It still wasn't my my team, my purpose, my mission. And so really, as I transitioned into the CBD industry and, and started Naked Warrior Recovery, actually finding a purpose, like a reason, like for helping people, not just trying to make money, uh, but money's great. I would love to make more money, not just trying to, you know, make money from other companies, you know, helping other people. I want to, I want to provide value to people. And, you know, part of that is, is getting on, on different platforms and, you know, the, the, the Navy SEAL mindset, the five SEAL secrets, you know, sharing that with people. And maybe you can't, you know, incorporate every one of those 
five secrets into like a part of your life. Like you shouldn't try to incorporate it into everything. You should only try to incorporate it into one piece of your life. And maybe you can't do all five. Maybe you just do two. And then when you master those two and that one part of your life, you incorporate the other three. And then once you master all five in one part of your life, then you can incorporate it into other pieces of your life. Naked Warrior Recovery, you know, CBD is a modality to help out with stress, anxiety, sleep, things like that. And then the, the, the mindset piece of it with the, with the five seal secrets is, is a whole nother part of it. But they didn't teach me how to be a business person in the military. They just, you know, they're like, okay, you know, I can do spreadsheets and I can manage people. And I learned some good, I learned good leadership oftentimes through failure, like being a terrible leader at times, but, but I learned those lessons. And then I rebounded from, you know, sometimes I did great. And I always say that I don't learn anything when I do things right. I always learn when I fail. So that's kind of part of accept failure. Like I like hurry up, let me hurry up and fail so that I can learn the lessons so that I can actually get where I need to go. Yeah. It's really interesting because, you know, usually you enroll out of high school for the most part and you spend, you know, a decade or two or more in the military and then coming out to civilian life, you miss out on that young adulthood, uh, that normal, you know, that, that average human beings who go to college and then they get their first job and they do their corporate thing and they start a business, you're just jumping in. You're expected to lead and be able to start businesses and take care of yourself. So it's, it's hard. I, I, don't, I, I can see why there's so much distress and PTSD and, and, and probably abuse, you know, yeah. just to numb the, the feeling. So what was the hardest thing about trading the combat theater for the mean streets of the USA? Um, I mean, I would go back to combat right now if, if I could you know, again, being a part of a team, being a part of a mission, doing good work in the world, like taking bad people out of the world is like, you know, so that, that was my mission then. So now I has, I just have to look at it in, in a different fashion is like, I can still uh, help the good people in the world to be better people. And then, you know, hopefully that will just, there will be a compounding effect on the backside of that. But yeah, like it's hard going from like a way that you live kind of like what you said, uh, being in prison. Like this is all I've ever known my entire adult life. And then now, okay, transition now, like, okay, what are you going to do? How are you going to pay the bills? Like, um, because in the military, you get a, an okay paycheck. Uh, when you are no longer in the military, they don't care about you anymore. So figuring all that stuff out was, uh, and, and still is challenging at times. It, it's incredible. So you came back and you had PTSD, like many combat vets. And um, I believe you said that uh, vodka was your numbing agent of choice. If you're going to have a numbing agent, it's not a bad numbing agent, but it is, it is a numbing agent. <laughs> it not does make the next not, day a little hard. I, I'm, I'm not condoning, I'm not condoning <laughs> vodka in the least bit, even though I have Russian uh, roots. So what was PTSD like and what was the, what was vodka doing for you? Um, really for me, it's that noise, that noise that's in the back of your mind. You know, you get in the, in the car by yourself and you start driving and all this stuff starts coming back out. These, these thoughts, uh, this, you know, these, you know, internal conversations where you're just like arguing with yourself about who knows what, and, you know, up late at night, like I should go to bed, but I have a little bit of FOMO and some other stuff. And so I didn't. So I would like, okay, let's have a drink and let's have another drink and let's have another drink. And like, let's calm that, let's calm that noise down. Let's turn that noise off. And really I was just drinking myself to sleep. It's like, till I passed out more or less. And so I don't, I don't do that anymore. That's bad. Yeah. And CBD saved you, like you said. Yeah, like CBD was a total like helped like turn the 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 tide for me. It helped me like drink less, sleep more. Um, but again, it was just a modality. It was it was what you know it's not a magic pill. 
it has different effects for different people. But for me, it was it had such a powerful, uh, positive effect on my life that I, that's why I started Naked Warrior Recovery. Do you think you would have stopped without CBD? Um, I don't know. I mean, I I knew I wanted to get better. I wanted to stop doing that. It wasn't a it wasn't a direct. Like it wasn't like, okay, take CBD and don't drink. I still took CBD and I still drink, but then I just started drinking less over time. So I don't, uh, maybe, I don't know. I can't answer that. I still drink alcohol. I'm not, I'm not condoning out. I'm not saying it's bad or whatever. It was just like, that was just my medicine. That's like, that was my medicine, if you will, how I dealt with it. So you found CBD, you, you're starting a business. You know, I was reading the seal ethos and one section caught my eye. Uh, it says, I will never quit. I persevere and thrive on adversity. My nation expects me to be physically harder and mentally stronger than my enemies. If knocked down, I will be back up every time. I will draw on every remaining ounce of strength to protect my teammates and to accomplish our mission. I am never out of the fight. So I don't know of a better analogy to an entrepreneur in battle, right? Uh, Growing and repetitively saving their business. So with that, uh, we're going to talk about your business, okay? You were passionate about CBD. What did you do? How did you actually start the business? How did you create it and who helped you? So I, so again, going back to that, that young lady at this business summit, she was like, why don't you just start your own CBD company? And I, after she gave me my man card back, she, I I just started doing research. Like, how do you start a CBD company? Like what, what's going on? And as I was researching, I found that most of, I would say the FDA has gone out and done a lot of spot checks, like hundreds of companies, maybe even in the thousands, maybe not thousands, but definitely hundreds of companies. And they found that most companies, they either didn't have CBD in them. They have high levels of THC outside the legal hemp limit of 0.3% or less. Uh, they had high levels of heavy metals, uh, like mercury, arsenic, lead. They had other toxins. They had solvents in them from the way that people were trying to extract CBD from, from the from the hemp plant or from the oil. And so more than 70% of the, the products on the market were trash. Like it was like, just get rich quick. And so you you didn't really know what you were putting in your body at the end of the day. You maybe you didn't have CBD in the product at all. Maybe you were getting high instead of, you know, having the, you know, the, the CBD components. And so as I started researching this, I was like, oh my God, I have to find like, I, I went out and I found the, the highest quality suppliers that I could possibly find. And I, I still look and I still haven't found anyone that has a better product or better uh, CBD, high, more quality uh, than, than the suppliers that I currently use. And I partnered with them. And so one of the things that like when I say high quality, you know, there's a lot of companies out there that do independent third lab, third party lab testing. And sometimes they'll put it on their website. But they may put a, like, they will test the oil one time for one batch of CBD that they made five years ago. They don't do continually testing. They don't test, like, they, maybe they tested the oil, but they're not testing the final product. And so what we do is we extract the oil. We send the oil off to an independent third-party lab. They test it. It comes back good to go. Then we take that oil that has been tested and we put it through the manufacturing process, whether we're making, doesn't matter if we're making gummies or soft gels or an energy drink or a tincture uh, or a topical. Once we have the final product, we'll take one of those final products, we'll send it back to another independent third-party lab, test it again. And so every product that we sell, we put, I fail sometimes in keeping the website up to date, but every product that we sell, we put a QR code on it. And so on video, you can kind of see the QR code and you can, so every batch of everything that we make gets tested. So you can, you know, scan that QR code and look at the 
the, the lot number of the product that you have, and you can go on the website and you can find the actual lab results for that product that you have in your hands. So you can see, you know, toxins, mold, THC, uh, heavy metals, uh, how much CBD is in it and anything else that's in the product. So we take it, you know, an extra level. I mean, even some of the, the bigger names, the biggest names that you with really deep pockets, they don't do that second level of, of testing. They test the first half. They don't do the second half of testing for the most part. So uh, that's where we, we stand out uh, to be different than everyone else. And, you know, our products, 90% of my products, we remove the component of THC. So there's a lot of people, you know, I'm a, I'm a child of Nancy Reagan's war on drugs. Just say, no, I don't have a problem with THC. I think it's probably, it's a great molecule out there. I don't use it because I still maintain a top secret clearance for some government contracting work that I do on the side. And so I get drug tested. So we, we produce a, a broad spectrum product that has most of the minor cannabinoids and terpenes. So there's about 120 minor cannabinoids and terpenes in the in the hemp plant. And so we we extract the molecule THC so that we still maintain most of those minor cannabinoids and terpenes uh, and, and produce a, a high quality oil that still gives you more synergistic effects in the body. I love founders. I love the CPG industry. And I work with many, many uh, entrepreneurs, founders and businesses and brands with my company, ProMesh. I'm actually... Uh, interviewing tomorrow, Mike Fata, who is the founder of Manitoba Harvest, uh, the hemp seed company. I know him for many years. He's been a client. You know, he went through a lot of challenges with hemp and not even CBD. CBD's more in the news and, and much more difficult to to get across. I think there's still a stigma. So I'm congratulating you for doing the work right? and and making naked a principle that you adhere to. I can ask you questions probably till next week, I swear. I'm not asking you every question that I wanted to ask you just because of time limitations, but I'd like to close on my interviews with the following question. Who did you have to stop being when you first started, you know, got into the Navy? And who did you need to become to manifest your current success? Oh, wow. That's a good question. So I think... I had to stop being that redneck kid from from Meridian, Mississippi, uh, who thought he wasn't smart enough, wasn't fast enough. You know, I didn't think I was much of an athlete, uh, even though I, I tried to play football. My dad wouldn't let me uh, because my grades weren't very good. I had to stop kind of painting myself into a box of being a lesser person than other people that were around me because I learned later on that people, they considered me to be much greater than I considered to be my myself. And then, you know, as I as I matured, you know, in the Navy and in, in the SEAL teams, and then I transitioned into into entrepreneurship. I, you know, I had to become, I had to become more innovative. I had to become more independent and rely on my team less. However, that being said, I'm still building a team. I'm building a team of of trusted advisors. I'm building a team of mentors. I'm building a team of of peers who can help me navigate some of these completely unknown areas of entrepreneurship that I you know, that, that I'm going through. So I, I, it really, what I'm saying is I had to become brave enough to ask for help. Wow. And you're brave and you know, who's on your team, the seven headers are on your team and they're going to support you. I love it because, um, you know, you're doing some, some great, some great work. What does success look like for you now? Again, you know, really success to me is, you know, anything we can do to chip away at that number 22. Like if we can make it 21, that's a win. We can make it 10. That's a win. You know, if we can make it zero, that is absolute success. I know you can do it. I know there are others as well that are fighting the good fight. So let's tell all the seven hatters where they can buy your product and support you and how they can capture that PDF with the five uh, tips. 
So the my my CBD website is nw-recovery.com. You can also write in nakedwarriorrecovery.com, but I changed it to nw recovery nw-recovery because maybe people don't want to write the word naked in their search engine. I'm not judging. So nw-recovery.com is my my CBD website, uh, and and for the the kind of ebook PDF is uh, the number five. SealSecrets.com, the number five S-E-A-L secrets.com. And uh just put your name in and uh, email in there and I will send that uh PDF out to you right away. I will put all the links in my show notes. William, it's been a real, real honor to have you spend the time with us and share your wisdom. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you being having me here. And and on behalf of my listeners, man, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with William. Let's end today with the segment of the show that I refer to as, what can we hang our hat on? And here's my takeaway. Being an entrepreneur is hard as hell. You're literally creating an entity out of nothing. And like the SEALs, entrepreneurs going to battle daily to win no matter what. As the SEAL ethos states, in times of war or uncertainty, there is a special breed of warrior ready to answer the nation's call. Our special operations forces forge their spirits in the willingness to endure adversity. And with the skills they gain, they serve America, our people, and our way of life. We mere mortals, we common citizens can do the same. We can serve and protect our country, each other, and our way of life. The Seven Hatters, we may be different kind of warriors, but we nevertheless serve with honor on and off the entrepreneurial battlefield in the hopes of making the world a better place. Unlike the SEALs though, most of us don't have buds. We don't have hell week. No one gives us the training we need to survive. For the most part, we're on our own. The good news is that leaders like William have so generously shared his SEAL team wisdom to help us navigate the landmine road to success. I just loved when William said, quote, it doesn't matter how miserable life is. It doesn't matter how unattainable something is. All you have to do is make it to the next meal, end quote. I also loved, quote, you always have more in the tank. It doesn't matter like how tired you are, how exhausted, how whatever, like how much my legs are burning or my gut or my lungs, like how much on fire my body is, I can still go, end quote. And of course, William's five secrets to thinking like a seal in a world of business, his get naked framework. Never quit, accept failure, kill mediocrity, expose your fears, and do the work. So powerful. William, thanks again for joining us so we can benefit from your wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you received from it so we can attract even more high-quality people into our Seven Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selleck, and I tip my hat to you.